Remain standing for our sermon text, which is different from what is in the bulletin. Uh, it's what's on the handout from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I'll explain in a minute why. why, why I switched it. Listen carefully to God's infallible word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this revelation to us about prayer, and about the judgment that is to come, about our call to be grateful. And so as we consider your, what you have to teach us here, give us soft hearts by your Spirit so that we can hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Advent greetings. As Bobby said, Happy New Year. If, you, uh, if you're new or if you haven't been with us long, it uh, may be helpful. To, you, you can see in the bulletin and in the colors and in the robes that we are liturgical and we follow the church calendar. It's also important to note that we view the, the church calendar not as a master but as a servant. And as a servant, it's a good one, as it helps us to follow and remember the story of our Lord, his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension and his pouring out of the Spirit. Those are the, those are the main events in the gospel story, and those are the events that we highlight that the church calendar highlights, the readings and the songs and oftentimes the sermons highlight those things about our Lord's ministry on the earth, as well as his ministry to us in heaven. During Advent and Christmas, the topic of my sermons will be prayer. The purpose of Advent is to orient our hearts and minds to the second coming of Christ, Advent as most of you know, Advent means coming. And so many of our songs and scriptures 
in Advent, including today's sermon text I just read from 2 Thessalonians 1, they, they turn our thoughts to not only the first coming of Christ, but to the return of Christ, to the coming of His kingdom to earth. Advent and prayer, therefore, have in common that both of them require us to meditate on eternal things, on things that have their origin in heaven. That's, that's where they turn our hearts to. The, the message of Advent and the practice of prayer remind us that the first petition in the Lord's Prayer really is the substance of every prayer. Thy kingdom come. The praying Christian desires above all for Christ's eternal kingdom to come. Now, the mystery of prayer is that it's the greatest privilege, the greatest privilege in the world, the greatest privilege you could imagine. It costs nothing. We can avail ourselves to it at any time, and yet we find it difficult to do. God wants us to talk to him. He promises to listen to us and to respond to our request, the God of the universe, that is. He hears not only our words, but also our, our groaning hearts. He's gracious. He's slow to anger with us. Every blessing is, is at his you know, disposal to give. And yet, we have better things to do. The eternal God has entered time to be with us, but we have other things to do with our time. So where's the disconnect? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. What, the, the question, why is talking with God, talking to God, communing with God in prayer so difficult? Why, why is What's so intimidating about it? It's, it's, that's the question, right? Is it that God is big and powerful and we're scared to be in his presence? Well, that, would, that would make sense. But no, ironically, the, presence, the personal presence of Almighty God is not the main intimidation factor in prayer. The biggest fear about praying is not knowing what to say, not knowing what to pray to God. Paul himself knew about this struggle. He writes in Romans, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groanings. I'm always comforted that this struggle is a universal struggle. It's not just me, it's not just my generation. This goes all the way back. Even the Apostle Paul knew about it. But there's a solution to this problem. The solution is a simple one, uh, ultimately. And the solution is not one that I've thought up. It's not a new one. It's also as old as the problem. The solution is simply to pray Scripture, to pray with an open Bible, to pray God's Word back to Him, to pray the words that you have hidden in your heart from Scripture to God. This is what the men and the women of God have been doing ever since there have been words of God to pray back to Him. And one of my main goals in this series on prayer will be to encourage us, to encourage you, encourage me, remind you, remind me to use Scripture as the substance of prayer and as the springboard for prayer. The words you speak to God should be grounded in the words He has first spoken to you. Just as your love for God is a response to his love for you, your words to God are a response to his words to you. In studying Paul's prayers, 
we're not just going to learn what we're supposed to pray for. We're also going to learn how to use Bible passages in the Old Testament and in the New as the basis of prayer. Because there's power in praying your way through a psalm. There's power in praying your way through the book of Ephesians. Praying your way through the Proverbs or the Gospels. One of my sweetest times of fellowship was uh, with a, a man, a friend, a member of my previous church who would often come on his lunch break to the church and we prayed through the book of Ephesians. We would read it and pray it together. Christians should not just read Scripture they should read it prayerfully. Christians should not just pray to God. They should pray Scripture back to God. Praying and Scripture reading go together. And so one of the ongoing applications in this sermon series will be my encouragement to you to use God's words as the inspiration, as the catalyst for your prayers and to see what happens, to see how it uh, revolutionizes your, your prayers, your communion with God. And so if your prayers are stagnant, if you struggle with that universal problem that, that Paul mentions, and you're, you're, you're feeling like you don't have anything to say to God, well, it, it may be because those, your prayers are running low on the living and active Word of God. Your prayers need more Bible. They need life breathed into them. As you get into the habit of praying Scripture, you'll find that God's Word, together with the Holy Spirit in you, will show you things to pray for that you would have never thought of on your own. That's, that's one of the miracles of doing this kind of thing. So all the sermons in this series will focus on prayers in the Bible. And when you're learning how to pray Scripture, there are a few better places. We could start in a lot of places. Psalms would be a, a, wonderful, a wonderful place. But it's also... Paul's prayers are also a great place. Paul's prayers for the saints in particular. So in the coming weeks, we'll look at why the apostle prayed the way he did. We'll learn how to, to make his way of praying our way of praying. And we'll start making his prayers our own. Now the sermon title in the handout is, In View of This We Always Pray, The Warp and Wolf of Prayer. Now, I'll explain warp and woof in a minute, but the main part of the title comes directly from verse 11. That's why there are quotes around it. In view of this, we always pray for you, Paul says. Another translation could be for this goal, for this purpose, or based on this, we always pray for you in light of this, in view of this. And what's the goal? What's the apostle's goal for the Thessalonian believers? Well, Paul's referring to the previous eight verses. Verses 3 to 10 provide the, the framework of Paul's prayer in verses 11 and 12. The framework in verses 3 to 10 controls what and why, the what and why, I should say, of Paul's prayer in verses 11 and 12. And so today we're going to study the framework of prayer in verses 3 to 10. It's gonna, today, we're going to lay the foundation. And then we'll come back next week and in the following weeks to Paul's petitions, specifically the one in verse, verses 11 and 12 first. Well, in verses 3 to 10, we see two dominant principles. And I'm, I'm calling these two things the, the warp and wolf 
of Paul's prayer. That, that term, warp and woof, is a, is a weaving term that refers to the threads that run lengthwise, the warp and the threads that run across the, the woof or the woof. The warp and woof, when it's used metaphorically, describes the foundation of something, the framework of something. For example, you could say that the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are the warp and woof of our nation. These two documents form the base of of our national government. Verses 3 to 10 describe the warp and woof of Paul's prayer. The first principle... The warp in verses 3 and 4 is gratitude for grace. Paul teaches by example how to give thanks for the grace of God at work in believers. That's the first point. The second principle, the wolf, in verses 5 to 10 is confidence in God's judgment. It may not be obvious how these things go together or how they relate to prayer, but they do for Paul. Paul teaches us to be confident that Jesus will return to set everything right. Or we could say to answer every prayer. These two principles shape Paul's praying. And they they must shape ours. Let's, Let's see first how Paul gives thanks for the grace of God at work in the Thessalonian believers. Verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. For Paul... Gratitude is fundamental, not just in prayer, but in life. Giving thanks is, it, it, it dominates Paul's Christian life, dominates his letters and his prayers, especially his prayers for the saints. When you do a study of Paul, you're studying a man who's uh, just oozing with gratitude. And what does Paul give thanks for? He doesn't just give generic thanks. He gets specific. He gives thanks for particular things here and elsewhere. What do you give thanks for? And do you give specific thanks? And when, when you do, what is it for? Do our, do our prayers of thanksgiving focus on the things that Paul focuses on, on? Or do they focus on more on material well-being and comfort? Do you give God thanks mostly for, for food and health and safety and financial security and, and, and all the other things that make us happy and, and comfortable and secure? Those things that we give thanks for are the things, naturally, that we value most. If you mostly give thanks for the material and physical well-being of you and your family, then the things you value most are the material and physical well-being of you and your family. And the same principle is true for Paul. He gives, thanks, he gives God thanks for the things he values most. He's grateful for the Thessalonians' faith, love, and steadfastness. And we learn from this example to give thanks for these qualities in other believers. So first, give thanks that the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ is growing. Paul says in verse 3, sing all the time. The Thessalonians aren't satisfied with the faith they had yesterday. They're, they're stretching upward in, in, in spiritual maturity. And, and parts, Paul's heart overflows with gratitude uh, for this. Gratitude for their growing faith. Does the maturing faith of other believers excite you? Have you ever thanked God that someone's faith is growing abundantly? 
if not, then this is something to incorporate in, in your prayers. Now, one problem might be that, that you don't know what to give thanks for. Uh, maybe you know a lot of Christians, but you don't know whether the faith of any of them is growing abundantly. Uh, and even if it was, you don't know the specifics. If that's you, then the first thing you might need to do is to begin having more conversations with other believers that are centered on spiritual things and our walk with Christ. If, if, if you know, for example, if you know which music your brother or sister in Christ listens to, which movies they watched this year, how things are going at, at work, which curriculum, curriculum they use in their homeschooling, or what their favorite news source is, which novel they read last month. But you don't know anything about their walk with Christ and how their faith might be growing. Then then the, that friendship may be thriving at many levels, but there may be a total lack of Christian fellowship, which is centered on Christ and the things of God. Uh, a healthy church is not only one full of friends. A lot of institutions are full of friends. A healthy church is one that is full of rich spiritually-minded Christian fellowship among people who might otherwise never become friends, among people who may, have, who, who may not have anything or much in common politically or, or intellectually or socially or recreationally, but who have the most important thing in common, their faith in Jesus Christ, their union with Christ and therefore their fellowship with one another. And so if you don't know what to give thanks for regarding the faith of your brothers or and sisters in the Lord, or if you don't know whether their faith is abounding, increasing, then begin by cultivating relationships with them that revolve around Christ, that are centered on his word, and then you'll know how to give thanks for their growing faith. And second, give thanks that their love is increasing. That's, that's what Paul does in verse 3. And notice that Paul doesn't have in mind their growing love for God. Obviously, he's thankful for that too. But in verse 3, he's specifically thankful that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul's not talking about... Uh, you know, some you know, sentimental love that just resides in the heart and that never comes out to do any work. He's talking about practical love, sacrificial love, love that serves, love that, that dies to self, love that covers over wrongs, love that gives the benefit of the doubt, that hopes in all things, love that reconciles and forgives. This is Christian love, and it's the love that Paul taught and lived out. It's the love that he preached and practiced. But it's, it's fair to ask, why is Paul so thankful that their love for one another is creasing, increasing? Why is, this, why is this so high a priority for him? Well, it's because Paul knows that if their love for one another is increasing... It's evidence that they belong to Jesus. And in John 3, 13, Jesus said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you, do what? If you have love for one another. There's much to be thankful for here, much to rejoice about. When Christians love one another in practical and tangible ways, their love becomes an indicator that God's grace is at work in their midst, among them. Paul struck by the growing love of the Thessalonian church. He, he knows their love is the work of God's grace. It's a gift from God, and so he appropriately directs his gratitude to God. 
when a believer's faith increases, his love increases along with it. So these first two things go together. So, so as you cultivate spiritual relationships with one another, and, and you see how God is maturing other believers in the body, give thanks for their growing faith in Christ and for their growing love for the brethren. Third, give thanks that they are enduring trials with steadfastness and faith. If you look at verse 4, it doesn't explicitly say, explicitly say that Paul offers God thanks for, for their faithful endurance. Uh, the text actually says that Paul boasts to other churches about their endurance in the face of trials. He says, I boast about you among the churches of God. And, and what's he boast about? Your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul's boasting here is an expression of gratitude to God. Paul's deeply thankful that the believers in Thessalonica had become spiritually strong enough by the power of God, he says, to, to persevere under trial. He's boasting about what God is doing. He's boasting about God's power in the Thessalonians. He's not boasting in his work as a church planter. He's not boasting about how well he did in, in getting them started and laying the foundation upon which they're building. He's, he's not boasting in what the Thessalonian Christians are doing in their own strength and their power. No, he's boasting in God. That's what Paul does. When Paul boasts, he only ever boasts in the Lord. And so we can hear Paul saying to the other congregations, Hey, have you noticed the power, how powerfully the grace of God is working in the lives of those Thessalonian believers in the church at Thessalonica? Their steadfastness in the face of the persecution that they're, that they're receiving is, is remarkable. Their faith in the midst of afflictions is just a compelling testimony of God's grace. What an example they are. What an encouragement they are. Boasting, in, boasting to Christians about the work of God in other Christians is a beautiful form of thanksgiving. It, it blesses our Father when His children build one another up or when they boast about one another's spiritual growth because they're boasting about what God is doing in them. Now, I, I know there, there's a, a, a human parallel to this. I, I as, a, as a mere human father, experience a unique joy when one of my children boasts about one of his siblings or her siblings to people outside the family, for example. It, it's refreshing to see love and admiration among one's children instead of rivalry, resentment, and competition. And our Father loves when we dwell in unity and when we boast about what is going on, what God is doing in one another. And so in verse 4, Paul specifically boasts about their steadfastness in afflictions. Now, we, we don't face the same kind of afflictions that the Thessalonians uh, were. We, we don't know exactly what, what they were facing. Paul calls it persecution. So there were outsiders who were inflicting some kind of pain, afflicting them in some kind of way. In a, in a way that we don't experience exactly. But we all are afflicted. We all, we've been in Romans 8, right? We all groan. We all suffer. And as you begin to talk with your brothers and sisters in Christ about the things of the Lord, cultivating those intentional uh, Christian rela you know, relationships of 
Christian fellowship, get to know the trials of the people that you worship with. Look for how God is giving them steadfastness and faith in their afflictions and boast about this to God and to the saints when it's appropriate. There's a lot of boasting that we could, could do if we knew one another better, if we knew what God was doing in one another in maturing us and giving us that faith and steadfastness. If you want to think and pray like Paul, you need to look for signs of grace in the lives of Christians. That's what he's doing here. He's seeing signs of grace and other Christians. And then he's giving God thanks for what he sees. And he can see it because he cares and because he knows these people. So make a habit of praising God when you observe evidence that your brother or your sister is being conformed to Christ's image. When your brother or your sister is fighting victoriously against the, the darkness and the despair that you know about because you know your brother or your sister. Tell God thank you when you see in other believers an increase of faith, faith in God, in love, love for the brethren, and what we might call spiritual stamina by God's strength. And so the first dominant feature in Paul's framework. The first main principle is gratitude for God's grace. Give thanks for the work of God's grace in the lives of other believers. Give thanks for their growing faith, their growing love, and their faithful endurance. The second principle, the second dominant feature in Paul's framework is confidence in God's judgment. Be confident that Jesus will return to set everything right. That's the thing Paul talks about most, actually, here. Verse 5, he says that the steadfastness and faith of the Thessalonians is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, because of their faithfulness, Paul says in the second half of verse 5 that they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Okay, what's that mean? Is, is he saying that their faithful endurance has has earned something, has made them worthy of the kingdom of God, like in itself, that, that worthy steadfastness is enough to make them worthy in the kingdom of God? Well, of course not. God's grace alone makes them worthy to enter the kingdom. It's God's power, as Paul refers to. And yet their faithfulness is clear evidence that they belong to Christ, evidence that they have been saved. And therefore, evidence that God will count them worthy of his kingdom on the last day when Jesus returns. In verses 5 to 10, Paul is looking ahead. He's looking all the way to the end, to the second coming of Jesus, when the kingdom of heaven will come to earth, when the enemies of God will be destroyed and Jesus will reign over heaven and earth, a heaven and an earth that contains not even one enemy. Right now he reigns over heaven and earth. And the earth does still contain enemies. One day it will not. And when Paul says kingdom of God here, he's talking about the final triumph of that kingdom, the final triumph of God at the end of the age, the culmination of the kingdom that he inaugurated in his first coming. He's referring to the glory that you and I will enter into and experience on the last day when Jesus comes back to give us our new bodies, to give us a new earth. At that time, Jesus will also inflict, also inflict vengeance on those who don't know God, who, he says, who don't obey his gospel. 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, Paul says in verse 9. They'll have to endure that, the same wrath of God that Christ endured on the cross for his people for all eternity. Paul's reminding the Thessalonian believers that they're on a path by God's grace that ends in the glorious and completely glorified eternal kingdom. Their endurance will pay off. Their steadfastness will be rewarded. In Scripture, suffering is not presented as a good thing in itself, ever. Christians are called to, are not called to enjoy suffering. But we are called to endure suffering with joy and for the joy that is set before us. And the joy that awaits us in the kingdom of God cannot be compared with any of the suffering we experience on the way to that celestial city. The thing that jumps off the page of this scripture is Paul's confidence that God will set everything right. I mean, he's giving them hope in the midst of their pain by pointing to the day when everything will be as it ought to be. Everything will be right and good and settled for believers. And his confidence has two sides to it. And he teaches us to have this same double-sided confidence. First, we're to be confident that Jesus will reward believers on that last day. Verse 7, Paul says that God's final justice will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And then he says down in verse 10 that Jesus will come back to be glorified among his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because you believed our testimony to you. I fear we may have lost Paul's expectancy here, not just in this passage, all over the place, and not just in Paul, all over the New Testament. Paul eagerly anticipated the day of Christ's return. He wasn't an escapist. He, he obviously was a man who labored as long as the Lord had him in this world. But he anticipated, he longed for the second coming of Christ. He didn't know when Jesus would come back, but he did look forward to what will happen on that great and glorious day, a day of reckoning for God's enemies. And a day of relief, Paul says. A day of vindication for God's friends. Paul eagerly anticipated the day of the Lord. And this anticipation shaped his prayers. And I, and I wonder if, if we have a hard time making the connection between this, this you know, strong language about the judgment of God and prayer. Paul's making a connection here. You know, in view of this, he's getting ready to say, we may, I don't know, I think we may have a hard time understanding that connection because we don't have that expectancy, the eagerness of anticipation that Paul had. And so we don't think about the fact that all of our prayers will be answered on that day. That's one of the things Paul's thinking here. All the prayers for God's judgment on the wicked in the book of Psalms uh, will be fully, completely answered. All of the prayers in that same Psalter, the same book of Psalms, for vindication for the righteous will be answered fully, completely on that day. All our prayers, thy kingdom come, will be finally answered on that day. All our prayers for relief, for 
comfort for God to deal with this unrighteous situation over here, this problem over there. All those prayers will be answered on that great day. And so we are to pray knowing that, being confident of that, believing that. Maybe too often our prayers, our, our minds during prayer don't, uh, don't think about that day. They, we, we only think about this world and how is God going to answer this prayer in this life. And then we might become discouraged or lose heart when we don't see our prayers being answered in the way that we think they ought. But for Paul, that final day of reckoning, final day of vindication, final day of wiping away all tears, final day when righteousness will pervade everything, shaped his prayers, shaped his heart, and it gave him comfort and confidence. And so do you look forward to the second coming the way Paul did, the way the apostles did? the way the New Testament does. Do you look forward to the day when Jesus will come back and raise you from the dead and give you a new body and punish the wicked, remove all unrighteousness, and make it so that you can see, ah, all the prayers of the faithful, every prayer of faith has been answered. This future event is the climax of the story. It's the climax of your salvation. It's the crowning event of world history. To what extent does this crowning event form or inform your prayers? Paul anticipated this event all the time. It was basic to his thought, to his theology. It undergirded his faith. It anchored his prayers. But I wonder how often most of us think about the last day. You know, we believe it's coming. Uh, we, every week, in fact, we confess a creed that affirms this. But is it a truth that transforms us? That, that shapes our piety, our, 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 our faith? In Romans 13, Paul says, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That's kind of obvious, right? That, that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's nearer than it was five seconds ago. But there's an important thing here that we can't miss. The, the, the salvation Paul's talking about here is the, is the return of Christ, which is 2,000 years nearer to us than it was to Paul, and yet somehow we have less expectancy than Paul. The loss of Paul's eager anticipation is a, is a great loss, a great loss to, to us to our faith, to it's a great loss to the body of Christ. A great loss to, to a local congregation. Because Hebrews 10 says that there's a connection between our local fellowship, our, our gathering together, our assembling, uh, and our ability or willingness to look at the approaching day of the Lord. Hebrews 10.25, let us not neglect assembling together, meeting together, as some have made a habit of doing. So that's also an age-old problem. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So somehow our Christian fellowship is supposed to intensify we're supposed to become more committed to meeting together, more committed to encouraging one another. Paul says there, to encourage one another in the faith. 
That's supposed to increase as the day of the Lord approaches. As the day of the Lord approaches, there's supposed to be more and more urgency in these things. But, so what if we're not looking, seeing this approaching day with anticipation? If we can't see it coming, coming, it's, it's because we're spiritually nearsighted. If, if we can't see this day, if we don't know where to look, it's because we've become myopic. Other things have caught our eyes and captivated our hearts. It's not that it's not there to be seen. And those other things convince us that assembling with the saints for fellowship for mutual encouragement is not crucial. Coming together is not urgent. We can do it when we have time. Second, Paul teaches us to be confident that Jesus will punish his enemies on that last day. In verse 6, Paul says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 8 says that on the last day, God will inflict vengeance. Vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God will be the avenger on that day too. It's a great and glorious day. It's a happy day and a sad day. Jesus will take vengeance on those who don't obey him. Sad, happy for believers, sad for those who have not submitted to Jesus. He'll afflict his, his enemies and cause them to experience even greater affliction than they afflicted on others. They'll be cast out of his presence, away from his glory, Paul says. This is, again, this is one of the... Places in Scripture that uses the strongest language about this kind of thing. And so how often do you think about God, about Jesus, the avenger? How does the future vengeance of Jesus inform your faith and shape your prayers? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is based on the belief, on, on the notion of righteous Judgment, righteous vengeance. God's nature requires retribution against evil. Because of his holiness, God can't overlook sin. He must punish it. He can't turn a blind eye to evil. He can't let bygones be bygones apart from atonement. It would go against his nature to ignore sin and forget about what must be dealt with. This is heavy. This is, these are heavy truths. But it's true that God's not only a God of love and mercy. He's also a God of wrath and retribution. He's perfect in love and he's perfect in holiness. He can't compromise his holiness any more than he can compromise his loving kindness, his mercy toward his People. If God were to forgive a sin without punishing that sin somehow, he would be unjust, unholy. His entire moral order would collapse. A just judge must give just verdicts, which requires dealing with sin justly. Otherwise, he's not a just judge. God's infinite holiness demands this judgment that we just read about. And so God, in his infinite love, sent his son to the cross to absorb all that retribution, all that judgment that you deserved for your sin. That's the only way out of this Fate described in 2 Thessalonians 1. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven not because God overlooked your sin. You're forgiven because Jesus took your sin. He took your retribu God's retribution toward you. He took it. He 
carried your cross and, and died on it. He endured your punishment. Paul says in another place, For our sake God made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus was judged by God on the cross so that you could be right with God. And so the cross proves, establishes two things at once. It proves that God demands retribution, but it also proves that God is love. The cross as I've said before, is where we see that God is a God of judgment and a God of forgiveness, love, a God of vengeance and a God of grace. We see both of those things best at the cross. At the cross of Christ, God's mercy and God's wrath are displayed at the same time in the death of the same person. And they are on display in all their fullness God's mercy and God's wrath are displayed in all their fullness, in all their glory in that event. In a single event, in the crucifixion of Jesus, God demonstrated his hatred of sin and his love for his people simultaneously. In verse 11, Paul says, In view of this, we always pray. And we always pray for you. In view of God's grace at work in believers, for which we should give thanks, and in view of the approaching day of God's judgment about which we must be confident, we pray for one another. These two principles, gratitude for God's sanctifying grace and confidence in God's coming judgment, are the framework, the the warp and woof of prayer. Let's pray. Father, in view of these things, I pray for the saints of Christ the King Church that you, our God, may make all of us worthy of your calling and that you may fulfill in us every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and so that we may be glorified in Jesus according to the grace of our God, according to your grace, according to the grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.